0: Did you know how well they eat in Bulgaria? Turks, Greeks, Mediterranean culture, Slavic culture, and all of these different cultures they reflect in our cuisine. Coming up, we get a taste of the hearty
1: culinary traditions of Bulgaria and of the Gascony region in southwestern France, where duck is the protein of choice.
2: They roast them whole, they will confit them, which means to poach them gently in their own fat and preserve them. Uh, They will flambe them in Armagnac. I could go on and on. Plus, tour guides from Italy explain why they like to use
3: so much olive oil when they cook. Olive oil is basically the foundation of what is called the Mediterranean diet.
4: It doesn't build up in the system like so many trans fats. It's an antioxidant, so it protects your cells from deteriorating, so you stay
1: young forever. There's a place at the table for you in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Homer and Plato are said to have called it liquid gold. Coming up, we'll hear why olive oil is such an important part of the daily diet in Italy and the Mediterranean. But there's a corner of France where they prefer cooking with duck fat we'll hear what an American food writer learned about the traditions of Gascony, where food that tastes good turns out to be good for you, too. Let's start today's culinary edition of Travel with Rick Steves with a sampling of Bulgaria's lively food traditions. That's one country where you definitely want to be invited over when there's going to be a feast as a crossroads of dynasties for centuries. Bulgaria is one of the oldest states in Europe, and it has a proud cuisine based on all of these cultures that have come and gone. It mirrors its complex demographic makeup and its fascinating history. You can learn about people through their museums and their art, and you can also learn about a culture through its kitchen. And right now, that's what we're going to do, is we're joined by Stefan Bozajev, and we're going to talk about Bulgarian cuisine. Stefan, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me here, Rick. Stefan, how does Bulgaria's history and its complex
0: ethnic makeup show itself in your cuisine? It's an interesting question, because we have always been at a crossroad of civilizations. Turks, Greeks, Mediterranean culture, Slavic culture, and all of these different cultures, they reflect reflected in our cuisine. And this is the reason why our cuisine has so many specifics. Okay, so you're going to take
1: me out to dinner and we're going to demonstrate that. What are some dishes that would illustrate the many different invasions that Bulgaria has endured?
0: The first and most traditional dish is actually liquid. It's our traditional alcoholic beverage, rakia. Rakia. We start every meal with rakia, typically made of grapes or other fruits. While we're waiting for our salad to come, we have already our first rakia. Finished. You drink the rakia
1: through the meal? Exactly. Okay, so the first course would be salad. What kind of salad might you have?
0: Oh, the most traditional one uh, is called Shopska salad. Literally means the salad from the Shopsky region. This is the region of our capital city, Sofia. So around Sofia. But I find that almost every meal all across Bulgaria, the beloved Shopska salad. Yes, it's like our traditional salad. In every single restaurant from the upscale, the most upscale restaurants... To those in the remote villages, this is a must on the menu. If you are familiar with the Greek salad, it will be something close. Tomatoes, cucumbers, onions, peppers. The best peppers are not the raw ones, but roasted peppers. Roasted peppers. Yes. And on the top, you put some cheese. Typically, cow cheese. Cow cheese. Yes. And in Greece, it's a slab of cheese. Yes, in Greece, it's a slab of cheese. And here, we uh, grate the cheese. Stefan, when you eat the very best
1: Chopska salad and you, you've been eating it all your life and you kind of go, this is really good, why is it
0: really good? Really good? What distinguishes a good Chopska salad? First, this is the cheese. The cheese. The cheese is important. And the other thing, the peppers they must be roasted. In some restaurants, they don't want to work quite much in the kitchen, so they are raw, but roasted peppers and cheese. I've gotcha. This is Travel with
1: Rick Steves. We're talking with Stefan Bozejev about Bulgarian cuisine. Okay, you've had your salad. What comes
0: next? After salad, it came the main course. Our main course, of course, a lot of grilled and barbecued meats. We have kebabce or kyufte. Kebabce. It's like minced meat croquet and kifteisa meatball, grilled meatball. So these are minced meat or meatballs stuck
1: on a long stick? No, there's no
0: no long sticks. No? No, they're just like pure meat uh huh, put on the grill and then put on your plate. What kind of spices? Oh, all kind of spices. Actually, the spices that we use, of course, a lot of parsley, a lot of uh, dew, savory, these are very traditional spices. And on the top of that, we have one very traditional, sharana salt. This is a mixture of different herbs. This is and a sauce? It's not a sauce. It is like salt. Salt? Yeah. It's okay. a salt, colorful salt, and different herbs. So red paprika, sage, savory, everything put together. And we dip our bread inside, and we just enjoy.
1: That sounds very good. Do you have an influence of Greece because Greece is a a big culture and in a lot of ways you have the similar
0: environment in your cuisine. What sort of Greek flavor would you find? For sure, one of the most traditional meals that Bulgarians believe it is Bulgarian, it is the moussaka, which Ah. is actually coming from our southern neighbors, from, from the Greeks. But here in our version, we add just minced meat and potatoes. We don't add zucchini or eggplant inside No, potatoes mainly. So it's the potatoes and? And the minced meat. In
1: Greece, of course, they have a lot of meze, these appetizers. Do you have this meze way of serving people, family-style little plates?
0: Yes, it is also very popular in uh, Bulgaria, the meze style. And actually, it is the same word that we use uh, for that. We have different appetizers, some uh, cheese, some dry sausages, and also different dips. Now, I'm remembering some beautiful... Cold soup, kind of a vegetable cold
1: soup. What is that?
0: This is called tarator. It is very traditional Bulgarian soup during the summer. It consists of yogurt, chopped cucumbers, garlic, dew, walnuts, and a few drops of olive oil on the top. Sounds just beautiful. Yes, and it saves us during the hot summer days. Because it can be quite hot in the summer. Yes, that's very possible.
1: You talked about the uh, grilled peppers in the Shopska salad, but also I remember when I go to a restaurant, there's a lot of stuffed peppers as part of the main course.
0: Yes, stuffed peppers. This could be on the menu of every Bulgarian family. Very traditional one. The most traditional one is to have stuffed peppers with rice and minced meat. But also, on the other hand, we have stuffed peppers with what? With cheese, of course. And these are very delicious. Cushka burek. Stefan is our guest right now, on Travel with Rick Steves. He's the principal tour
1: guide for Luba Tours of Sofia and one of Bulgaria's most passionate advocates. He's telling us how a complicated and long history results in lavish culinary traditions in his corner of the Balkans. You're traveling around the United States now, and when you get home, here you've had lots of hamburgers and pizza and all sorts of American kind of fast food and so on. When you get home and you go back to your mother... What do you want her to cook you? What will
0: be the welcome home meal for you? The welcome home meal for me will be kavarma. Kavarma. What is that? Kavarma is a stew. It could be pork meat or chicken, but for sure a lot of peppers inside, mushrooms, onions, tomatoes. And when you put just a little bit parsley on the top and when you have bread Oh, that's, that's perfect. This is what I want my mom to prepare when I am back home. Could you find that in a restaurant? Yes, in some of the traditional restaurants. But not the way mom makes it. No, no. I've never tasted better than my mom's. And let's say the big feast when a friend is getting married. Oh, la, la. What are you going to have there? What
1: is the ultimate formal dinner that Bulgarians would serve at a, a festival of a lifetime?
0: Actually, what you say, it won't be just one formal dinner. Three days. 3 days of partying and eating. Of course, that's so normal for people in Bulgaria. Lots of rakia, lots of rakia. It's important. The most traditional way is when a baby son is born. Typically one of the grandfathers bottles one of his homemade rakia and this rakia is kept till the marriage. So Yes, we have a really Really aged rakia. An aged, treasured, homemade from
1: grandfather's rakia. Yes. Is that a brandy or a a vodka or a ouzo
0: or what, what? Some people would say it's very close to the Italian grappa. Grappa, yeah. But here in Bulgaria, we make it not only from grapes. We can make it from all kinds of fruits so we can uh, make it from apricots, a Schnapps? Peaches. Is it kind of like a schnapps? It's some kind of a schnapps, of the German yeah. schnapps. Because I don't drink a lot every
1: night of the week, but when I was in Bulgaria working with you, we had rakia a lot every, with every dinner meal and it, it seemed to just lubricate the happiness. There was something, I guess that's what alcohol
0: does. Yes, actually, it opens our senses for the meals to come. This is the way really to appreciate the flavors of the cuisine. And the flavors of the
1: company. Everybody is there. It's a convivial sort of... Yes, it's
0: a social thing. We're
1: at this big grand... It's a baptism. It's a three-day party, and we, we're talking about Raquel. Yeah, what yeah, else? what, what, what wedding, are we going to
0: eat? Uh, we can eat, of course, a lot of shopska salad mm-hmm. is prepared for that. The most traditional mezes are on the table as well. So we have a lot of different dried sausages presented there. We have cheese, but of course, we are getting to some of the more traditional Bulgarian cuisines, we can have pork. Pork is extremely important. This is the most important uh, uh, meat pork. in Bulgaria. Pork. Mm-hmm. In different uh, varieties. Then we can have something which is even more traditional, beans. 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 Simply beans. Yes, simply beans as a soup or as a salad, bean salad. Uh-huh. But beans is also traditional. That's why we have it. When it comes time for dessert, what would be the traditional, most beloved dessert? And here, we can say again that we are so related on the Balkans. Baklava. Baklava.
1: Baklava. Because that's what you'd have in Turkey or in Greece.
0: Exactly. Exactly. We have it also in Bulgaria. And you can, besides these modern cakes with all that decoration, but baklava is the real deal. So, not only during the weddings, but all the special events, even When I was in my home for Christmas, my grandma made baklava. And I cannot wait to go home for Christmas because of her baklava.
1: I hear you. You know, you have all these fancy cakes and all this icing and all this over-the-top decoration. Yeah. But when you get down to baklava, that's fundamental dessert. It is. What is it about baklava?
0: The thing about baklava is uh, the following, that... uh, even it comes from the communist period because you have a lot of butter, you have a lot of sugar, products that were not always presented on the shops. That was, oh, so that was black market oh, yeah. stuff in the communist
1: days. Yes. So if you knew somebody with sugar and honey and butter,
0: yeah, put and it that together, you, you, got can, you got some can, baklava. Can, uh, get some baklava. Over and, at
1: Stefan's house. Yes, for the new year. You have a heritage where just a a little bit of uh, sugar
0: and butter was something to celebrate, so you appreciate it more now, I suppose. Exactly. That's why I, I really adore this dessert, and many of the other Bulgarians as well. You appreciate it more, perhaps, than the people in Turkey and Greece because in your childhood you did not have it. Exactly, exactly. When we didn't have anything, afterwards we have this high appreciation because it reminds us of those hard periods. And show us where we are now.
1: Blagodaria, that's thank you, right? That's thank you. Blagodaria, mola, welcome. Still to come, we explore the merits of duck fat versus olive oil as we look into the culinary traditions of Gascony and Italy. We're at 877 7425 on Travel with Rick Steves. In Gascony, they say the ducks outnumber people 7 to 1. The timeless qualities of the largely agricultural southwest of France captured the imagination of food writer David McIninch. It may be skipped over by most tourists, but among the French, Gascony is known for having some of the tastiest food in Europe and some of the longest life expectancy rates in France. To understand how the people of Gascony eat and live and enjoy sharing what's on the table with their family and friends, David moved his family to a drafty old mill house in rural Gascony. He writes about his discoveries in his book, Duck Season in Gascony. David, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. David, I know you're very into cooking, and you're a Francophile, and you claim that perhaps the richest, tastiest, and heartiest cuisine in France is in Gascony. Tell us about what I, I think you called the most delicious corner in France.
2: Where to begin? It's a regional cuisine I fell in love with almost instantly. It can be a little shockingly rich to newcomers. Duck fat is the cooking medium of choice in this corner of France, Whereas if you go to the east about 200 miles, it's olive oil because you're in Mediterranean, Mm. France. If you head up north to Normandy or Brittany, it's usually uh, butter. But in Gascony, duck fat is what you cook with and it lends a a depth of flavor to almost everything. So that's really the kind of coin of the realm of this part of France. And then obviously the protein of choice is duck. And Mm. uh, these animals are raised on family farms all over the southwest. It's cooked in every imaginable way. They they roast them whole, they will confit them, which means to poach them gently in their own fat and preserve them. Uh, they will flambe them in Armagnac, I could go on and on.
1: Now the foie gras, tell us about the foie gras and uh, what kinds of foie gras are there?
2: There's a statistic that I cite in my book uh, that most Americans find shocking on the average, the residents of the Gers, which is the administrative department that is the heartland of Gascony, eat foie gras on average twice a week, which is almost unimaginable to us. You know, it's a farm product like any other. Um, Is this goose uh, foie gras? uh, It used to be. About a generation ago, goose foie gras was dominant and goose farming was dominant. Uh, Then sometime in the 1960s they began to raise a different kind of crossbreed of duck that was very suited to fattening and uh, duck is now king. Do they force feed the ducks like they do the geese? Uh, they do. It's the same method. Uh, it's called gavage, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a method that was developed, most historians agree, by the ancient Egyptians, though the Gascons tend to want the world to believe that they invented it, and it's still practiced in the fall and winter on family farms all over the region.
1: So if you could have your choice between a fine goose foie gras and a fine duck foie gras, which would you choose?
2: Well... Notwithstanding the fact that I titled my book Duck Season, I do have to say that goose <laughs> foie gras is a really it's extraordinary delicacy. Yeah. <laughs> it's it hard to find. It's a, little, it's a little smoother, a little richer, um, but you can't go wrong with duck foie gras in no. Gascony either.
1: Ooh. And how often would you and your family have eaten that while you were there for your year, year in Gascony?
2: Well, early on, we kind of treated it as a special dish that we would trot out for an evening meal on the weekends. Mm -hmm. By the time our eight-month stay in Gascony wrapped up uh, toward the end of December, we were eating it every other day, Uh, (laughs) partly because it becomes sort of a currency that people use close to the holidays uh, during the gift-giving season. And so our daughter's school teacher would give us a jar of foie gras. Oh, uh, winemaker, I knew, gave us a jar. We we ended up having more foie gras than we could possibly eat. Just a so little bit. So we did bit. our best to get through it.
1: Just a little bit every night. Why not? You know, life is short. Life is good. Lots to be thankful for. Let's have some Amen. foie gras. This is Travel with Rick Steves. <laughs> We're talking with David McAninch. His book is Duck Season. And it's about his experience in Gascony, getting into this uh, a very remote and rural and and laid-back corner of France down in the southwest. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and James is calling in from Virginia Beach. James, thanks for your call.
3: Hi, Rick. Always good to talk to you. I'm going
1: to recommend the western part of France to people. I'm a Francophile myself. I've been there four times. Uh, We were in Sardat, I guess if you pronounce it correctly, for three days, and uh, we're there on market day. Which was wonderful. So I bought you know a container of foie gras, of course in the market, and also the next evening ate at a goussier. They had some duck in the restaurant, <laughs> and then and going further down, two days later to Cognacazol, we you know saw the many vineyards, and we went to we did have a winery tour where they spread out a luncheon for us. So, so that was just a wonderful part of France. It's it, it's like being in, some of the, as you know, some of the smaller villages of Italy where people, you know, appreciate their eating and take yeah. time. You know, that's right? a good point. If you like Tuscany, I think you'll like the southwest of France. And Now, I've been to the market in, in Sarla, and it is magn- it's a wonderful market. And, yes. uh, David, you write about the weekly village markets in Gascony, the Monday market in Mirand. Can you explain... What the markets feel like in Gascony, because Sarlat is uh, quite touristy and, and quite vibrant, far bigger than anything you'd find, I think, in Gascony. David, what was it like in, in Mirand?
2: Well, you, it, it's a relatively big market, but because the towns in Gascony tend to be very small uh, by comparison, it would feel it would feel small. Mirand is a classic example of what's typically called a bourg, which is uh, a burg, uh, a mid-size kind of gritty market hub, maybe two, three thousand people and it 's very sleepy by day, completely dead by night, except on Monday mornings uh, when it really crackles to life mm. and uh, That particular market is in a covered market hall, which kind of gives it a an added intensity, you might say. Mm. Um, there are a couple of fixtures of a Gascon market. There's always the vendors selling whole goose and duck and whole foie gras, which are these huge, sort of putty-colored organs that you can buy whole or in portions. And then and that would just be the um, ep- the fattened up liver of a duck. Then that is the fattened liver of a duck or goose. Mm-hmm. Um, they can weigh as much as three pounds to the point where you truly can't imagine it once resided inside a inside right. a duck. And then the other fixture of any respectable Gascon market is the buvette, which is another word for a bar. It's a little drinks counter Mm -hmm. uh, where the locals will belly up as early as 8 or 9 in the morning for a glass of wine or flok, which is that aperitif, or a beer. And they kind of put their foot on the gas and the brake at the same time they load up on coffee and then mm-hmm. wine and then coffee and then it all culminates with a big lunch after you've done your shopping. I love that
1: you wrote about it in your book where it's sort of amped up with coffee and then lubricated with wine and and the people get so into the lifestyle and the cuisine that they end up uh, swapping recipes.
2: That's right. That's, oh, that's right. A beautiful um thing. You have to have a Herculean patience when you're at a Gascon market because each customer is accorded a great deal of conversational time by the vendor, and and conversation is really the lifeblood of these markets. And that's and probably so, real
1: charming unless you're number four in line and you really want to buy this and move along. So it'd be a temptation true. for me. It'd be a real test for me, and I think that'd be a, a healthy exercise. Hey, James, <laughs> thanks so much for your call, and uh, enjoy your next trip to France. Thank you, Rick. We're exploring how they eat and eat well in Gascony with David Mackinage here on Travel with Rick Steves. David, his wife, and daughter spent nearly a year living in a 200-year-old mill house in a small village in the rural southwest of France. It was how they got acquainted intimately with the region's hearty cuisine and traditions. He writes about it in his book, Duck Season, Eating, Drinking, and Other Misadventures in Gascony, France's Last Best Place. You'll find links to David's work with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. You know, you can walk through the market and almost see the menu hanging on hooks, I would imagine. Uh, Talk just a little more about what you might find as you walk through the market that shines a light on the cuisine.
2: Pretty much every market, even the smaller ones, like the one in our village, which was called Plaisance du Gers, that was a Thursday morning market, has a few reliable fixtures. There's almost always going to be a fishmonger, You'll always have a meat and charcuterie vendor. Mm -hmm. And often you'll have a dedicated vendor of duck and goose products. uh, A lot of them en conserve, meaning they're uh, put up in jars. So you'll get your foie gras, your duck confit, things like that. There's always, in any town of a significant size, there's a a market-adjacent restaurant or cafe that Mm -hmm. fills up around 11.45 with Mm -hmm. all the people who had been socializing and shopping at the market. They come and they uh, they have their market day lunch. And mm. that, that to me, is the reward, the sort of grail at the end of it all. And it's a magnificent thing to, to experience.
1: I was just at a little town in Ireland talking to an old-timer there, and uh, he reminded me there was a time when people from the countryside came into the town, the big city of the region, which would be a, a little town, really, and they'd Mm -hmm. go to do their market chores, but it would be also a time to gather in the cafe and catch up with each other. And, you know, us tourists come in there with our cameras cocked and ready to go and take pictures of all this, but local people see the market as a a chance to connect, don't they? You must have had that sense in a small town. Absolutely. Market.
2: One of the first things I did when we got settled in, in Plaisance was, you know, we visited the Thursday morning market, and the first thing I noticed was that there were a lot of people there, but there was a lot less money changing hands and there was mm. clusters of people just chatting and talking. Mm-hmm. And I think across rural France and certainly in Gascony, perhaps more than other regions, the weekly village market is considered the supreme social event of, of the week. When you are there long enough as we were to get to know people – you get it. You wake up hungry for that that socializing because living in a small village, you know, you're not you don't have a packed social calendar, and this is yeah, the time to reconnect with people. Uh, we we loved it.
1: Given the sparse population and the farm spread all out, they're probably hungry for that that time to come together and and just catch up. You know, Absolutely. all that beautiful rustic eating with abandon you might want to work up an appetite. And you write in your book, uh, Duck Season, that one of the, the great joys was hiking in rural Gascony. It's a, you mentioned was a great way to connect. Uh, you mentioned coming upon these contraptions used to catch pigeons.
2: Um, not only did I stumble upon a, a palombier, which is a pigeon blind, it's a blind similar to a duck blind, except you're not hunting ducks, you're hunting pigeons. And these are the wood pigeons that pass through the region every fall. And uh, the pigeon hunt is a, is a big tradition among the menfolk of Gascony. These are these elaborate tree houses essentially. And they're a very odd thing to find in the woods because they have a system of wires and pulleys attached to them extending into the surrounding trees that are used to perch lure pigeons on and these are live pigeons that are used to lure the wild ones into range uh, to shoot them and ultimately eat them I actually had occasion to go pigeon hunting with a couple of the guys from the village who had kind of taken me under their wing if you'll forgive the metaphor (laughs) and um I did not fare very well as a hunter but had an unforgettable experience with these guys you know we had a hour and a half meal in a treehouse essentially that was as elaborate as one I might make on a saturday night at home so they would throw together a,
1: a, just an unforgettable meal in the treehouse waiting to catch the pigeons
2: this is one of the most uh revealing things to me about the gaskin spirit This is how sacred meals are to them. The palombier, the blind that you you hunt from, it's this rickety, uh, I called it a man cave in the sky. Uh, It's just the slapdash assemblage of chipboard and a 40-foot oak tree. This guy, Michel, who was on Cooking Detail that day, he hauled a Dutch oven with a civet of wild boar, which is a wild boar stew, and hauled it up by rope to the blind and had made his own uh, terrine foie gras. He had made his own pound cake, and we had wine, (laughs) we had dessert, we had an hour and a half meal sitting in this blind, and then everyone took a nap. And the pigeons got a pass for about an hour after that. That the... is
1: so rural French, isn't it? We did a similar thing in uh, Burgundy where uh, the guys got together, sort of the guys thing to do was to go out and chop firewood and they brought with them everything they needed for just this amazing <laughs> cooked picnic dinner out in the in, in the forest. And it was just like, I can't believe it. They're eating so well here, so rustic, but at the same time, so darn well. Another thing you talked about, uh, David, was taking a hike, and then looking forward to a a home-cooked meal that you would call to arrange in advance at a duck farm.
2: Oh, yes. Ferme Descoubet. This was a family-owned duck farm on the far western edge of the Gers, so sort of on the western fringe of Gascony, where my wife and daughter and I love to go hiking. It's this deeply corrugated landscape where vineyards alternate with fields of sunflower and rapeseed. It's gentle, easy hiking, and you can go as short or as long as you like. Really, one of my favorite things to do is to take a hike in the morning through the vineyards and then culminate with a meal at Ferme Descoubet. It's a family that runs a a sort of table d'hote, which is just sort of a, they open their kitchen dining room table to to tourists, and if you call ahead, they will make this uh, very traditional Gascon meal, which is really duck and potatoes fried in duck fat foie gras uh, they'll serve the family wine and uh, they'll Mm. serve it to you in the farmhouse by a crackling fire Um, I I mean if if there's a better reason to love rural Mm. France than that I don't know it
1: the setting sounds as magnificent as the menu I mean all together what a beautiful ensemble for your beautiful Gascony experience indeed David Mackinich, it's been great talking with you Uh, your book Duck Season eating, drinking and other misadventures in Gascony France's last best place is an inspiration even for people who've spent many many visits to France this is a corner of France that really deserves a, a good solid look can you close with just one more image that would sort of cap off our, our experience if we venture into Gascony in the southwest corner of France for our first time? What would be a favorite vision and memory that we would take home?
2: I tell you what, I, there was a, something I did on literally our very last night in Gascony. Uh, we had cooked a meal of... This is going to sound strange, but duck carcasses. It's really the meat that's left on the bone. You grill it, and you tear the meat off with your with your teeth, and it's pretty primal. It's a very traditional Gascon meal. We finished up. I went outside. It was late December, and I walked to the edge of our property outside the mill where we lived, and I sat by the river and watched the water flow under the old stone bridge and kind of imagined all the different waterways and rivers and rivulets flowing to the ocean, and... Uh, I felt, a, this is, may sound a little trite, but I felt a deep communion with this place. And when I feel homesick for Gascony, I often think of that moment. Because Gascony, in a lot of ways, is, is sort of the runoff of all
1: the the rivers and the streams off of the Pyrenees, uh, making this such a fertile corner of France that makes all of this rich cuisine and, and heritage possible, doesn't it?
2: That's exactly right. It's these tiny rivers that flowed from the Pyrenees and carved these hills and valleys that are the sort of hallmark of the Gascon landscape. Could we add just a little glass of Armagnac to that? I think that would be appropriate, yes.
1: Oh, nice. David Mackinich, thanks so much, and uh, it's always duck season in Gascony.
2: Thank you, Rick. It's been a pleasure.
1: Before we look at why Gascony's neighbors prefer olive oil as their fat of choice, we have just a minute for a little wine sampling. Vintner Jean-Claude is inviting us to duck into his wine cellar to escape the tourist crowds and the busy Rue de Vong winery route in Alsace. Wine is big business in France, and in wine regions like the Alsace and the border with Germany, you find many vintners who welcome visitors with walks through their characteristic cellars and generous tastings. Join me in a dank yet cheery cellar with Alsatian vintner Jean-Claude as we lament the end of wooden casks and the lack of good coopers these days, but celebrate how new technology is actually a blessing for wine lovers. I'm Rick Steves, and I'm in Alsace, in Eaglesheim, and this is wine country, the Rue du Vin. And uh, I'm with my friend and guide, Jean-Claude. Hello, Jean-Claude. Hello. These are big wooden casks. Do they so, make it this way anymore? No, it's over. You can hardly find cooper's here uh, who make wooden casks. Cooper's they, are coopers, the people who made these casks. So they these had to days. age this wood yes, and, and hammer over. these things on That's right. There. In the Alsace region, wow. it's not being done, made anymore. On the, uh, well, more, we have more and more stainless steel. Well, stainless steel with less risk when making white wine. Then in wooden casks, so you don't have too much tannin in the wine. Too okay. much tannin. Tannin in the wine. Look not, not like in red wine. Oh, okay. so, so this is white wine white here. White wine mainly, okay. So white wine is better with the stainless steel. Ah, very much better, less risk to, okay, to when you oh, age. Oh, so wine. it's an improvement, a modern yes. improvement. That's right. But I like the atmospheric old ah, cellar. You can smell. And it smell. Can you smell it? Mm, I can smell it. Wow. <laughs> Oh, baby, it's nice. Let's go outside and see what it's like in in Alsace on the Rue du Vin. We're coming up the cellar, and this is the old place where you taste the wine. Degustation means you can taste the wine.
4: I'm Rick Steves. We're having a good time in Alsace. Happy travels.
1: Tour guides from Italy join us next to sing the praises of their country's olive oil on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877 rick By now, I presume we've all heard about the heart-healthy benefits of a Mediterranean diet, even if you're not lucky enough to live in a Mediterranean climate. One of the basic ways I've heard for eating like a Southern European is simply use olive oil every chance you get. For a look at the prominent role olive oil plays in the Italian kitchen, we're joined now by Sicily-based tour guide Alfio Di Mauro and by Anne Long. Anne is an American and moved to Italy from Chicago years ago, and when she's not leading tour groups around Italy, she makes her home above the scenic Amalfi coast of the Mediterranean. Buongiorno. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Alfio, people in some European countries like to cook with butter, or, as we've heard about Gascony, with duck fat. But in your home of Sicily, and for that matter, around most of the Mediterranean, the food definitely has
3: a lighter touch. That's got to be because they're using a lot of olive oil, right? All of these countries around the Mediterranean basin they use olive oil, which is basically fat, which comes from vegetable, instead of relying on dairy and other sources of fat, and that seems to be very healthy for our uh, body. And we, as I'm coming from Sicily, we grew up in, in olive oil basically. My father, my family, still today we buy olive oil not at the supermarket. But at the mill, directly. At the mill? At the mill, yeah. When the olive oil is, is produced and we bring our container and they fill it up. Would he have a favorite producer of olive oil and what would be the difference? Olive oil is a very common commodity in Italy, especially in the south. So there's a lot of uh, still small producers. Mm-hmm. And, You, over the years, develop a certain expertise how to recognize good olive oil. Mm -hmm. But basically, if you always got the same traditional olive meal, you're you're sure about the product. So your father in Sicily? see. He knew where the reliable production
1: correct, was. Correct. Okay. Now, Ann Long, you've lived in the Amalfi area for how long? 38 years. 38 years. And you know your olive oil? I do know my olive oil. We, I produce my own
4: with trees that grow on property that belongs to my is that husband. Right? Yes.
1: So you have about
4: 100 trees.
1: 100 trees, and yeah. you make your own olive make oil. your own olive oil. Now, that's a lot of work, isn't it? It is a lot of is work, it? and
4: it's never, when you get down to value, it costs more to make it than it does to go out and buy it. Oh, I would imagine. But at well, least
1: it's your own. And why do you make it?
4: To make use of the trees. The trees are there. You don't want the stuff to just rot off, and then you have to prune the trees. You have to do all that work, so you might as well, uh, <laughs> might as well enjoy, enjoy, enjoy it. Them. And, and it's, it's yours. It's, it's yours. Your you land. know exactly what was put on
1: the tree, What yeah. was if anything was sprayed on the tree, mm-hmm. fertilizer. It was trendy in the 1980s, I believe. You have this uh, Mediterranean diet. What does that mean? Is it uh, Why is it healthy?
4: Uh, because you, everything is in balance. You know, mm-hmm. you don't eat too much meat. You don't eat too much fish. You A lot of vegetables and things that don't add cholesterol, fat. You know, you get your proteins from things like lentils and beans and things rather than just from meat.
1: And you're cooking in a vegetable-based oil, which would be olive oil. If you want to be healthy, if you want to live a long time, olive oil is probably better than other kinds of oil.
4: Right. It doesn't build up in the system like so many trans fats that they talk about. And uh, it's an antioxidant, so it protects your cells from deteriorating, so you stay young forever. Because you're 87. That's right. That's <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> so, Althea, when we're thinking about olives and olive oil, first of all, differentiate for me in the culture. You don't just pick an olive off of the tree and eat it. You have to marinate the olive, don't you? Or what yes. do you
3: do to make the olive edible? If you experience this, you will never forget. If you pick an olive you eat it, it is so bitter, that you will never do it again. This is not edible. Though. Yeah, it's yeah. not edible. So you have to somehow extract these bitter compounds from the olive, mm-hmm. and that's why you put the olive under a brine, which is saline solution in a salty solution. In a salty in solution. In a brine, it uh, ages or it marinates. Yes, yeah. and actually, if you want to speed up the process a little bit, you uh-huh. crack the olives, oh, and really. then you put inside this salty solution because okay. with this it will be faster. And you change the salty water at the beginning pretty often because it speeds up the process.
1: When I go through a market in Palermo and Sicily, there's many different kinds of olives. For a lot of Americans, you know, there's black ones and green ones. How do you differentiate between the olives, and which ones do
3: you like? Well, there are really countless varieties of olives. Uh, Certainly the one that you find in the market for conception, they're the biggest one, the largest one. Mm -hmm. Because there are certain varieties that are good for olive oil, certain varieties are good for Fresh consumption, mm-hmm. some of them are good for both. Okay. Yeah, but certainly, as Anne was saying before, when you have a very small olive, that is only for olive oil. Mm-hmm. So, Italy has a very, a lot of diversity when it comes to different species of olives of olives and in general of flora and plants the olive cultivation goes
1: back to ancient times oh absolutely so some of
3: these terraces you see they're they're centuries and centuries old Uh, yeah yeah in italy for instance the greek civilization that came in the south of italy brought the olives with them because that was a symbol of athena the goddess of greece And those terraces you're talking about that you see in Liguria, the region of the Cinque Terre, those are terraces that go back to 5,000 years ago. 5,000 years. I was was in Palestine, in the Holy Land, and they've got terraces called the biblical terraces that go back to Bible times, Old Testament times. And the Tuscans, for instance, in Tuscany, they were exchanging olive oil with the Sicilians and the Sicilians were giving them wine. There's already traces at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea of this kind of commerce of ancient times.
1: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Alfeo de Mauro and Anne Long, and we're talking about olive oil, particularly Italian olive oil. You know, Anne, I was in Greece, and they were bragging that this is our Greek olive oil, and they had a problem with Italian olive oil, and the Italians are saying, oh, the Greeks just take our oil and put a Greek name on it or something. What's the What's the competition between Greece and Italian, and does it really matter when it comes to olive oil? But
4: the Greeks win the competition for how much oil per person they consume. It's, oh, okay. it's up there at like 11 liters per year per person, the the average, whereas the Italians, it drops down to about nine. So they're big consumers and big producers, but the Italians say their olives are better, better soil, better production, even though it's smaller. The Spanish are also the same, They big production of olive oil.
1: And in Italy, you hear a lot of people saying extra virgin olive oil. What does that mean, extra virgin? Does that matter?
4: Extra virgin has to do with the acidity of the olive oil. The lower the acidity, the better the oil. So, extra virgin means it's the lowest. How do you acidity, make extra right?
1: virgin? Is it just because better ingredients or a different process, a more expensive process?
4: It's the first process. It's the first process where you're just pressing the olive in order to get the oil out and putting it into a bottle. You're not using any chemicals. You're not using any process that is going to heat up the oil or chemically force
1: the oil out of the. Okay, so this is like authentic, pure, right. top quality. Yeah. Do you care about olive
3: oil? Is it just? I'm not considering anything less than extra virgin olive oil. So everything that it doesn't belong to the extra virgin, for me, is not, not worth it. Life is too short too absolutely, eaten. Alfio. I love bruschetta. What
1: do you think about bruschetta? Yeah, it's one of the most impressive, it's the things. most beautiful it's things. Very simple. Describe for me the the excellent bruschetta.
3: So the excellent bruschetta comes first of all from a very good homemade bread. Uh huh. Okay, so you have a slice of bread, yeah. and you partially warm it up, warm it up, toast it, and then you spray some garlic. You grate the garlic on it. Absolutely. <laughs> and then you put extra virgin olive oil on top and a tiny bit of salt. And a little bit of salt, and, and that's, that's it. And that's ready to go.
1: I love bruschetta so much, sometimes it pains me when people put other things on top of it. Yeah. I like the pure, the yeah. basic bruschetta. This is the most simple and, in my opinion, the best. In the restaurant, what do you ask for if you don't want it with all the extra things on it? Bruschetta, olio d'oliva. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking olive oil with Alfeo Damaro and Ann Long. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Cheryl's calling in from Portland, Oregon. Cheryl, thanks for the call.
3: Hi, Rick. How are you doing?
1: Doing great. I'm getting hungry listening to all this talk about olive oil.
3: <laughs> I can understand that. So I uh, my question is, I have a trip to Italy soon, And my husband and I would like to buy some olive oil to bring back. And my question is, when I walk into a store and you have different olive oils with different price ranges, assuming they all say they're made in Italy, how do you get the best olive oil? How do you know you're getting a really good olive oil?
1: So, Anne, you've had a lot of friends come visit you in the Amalfi Coast. Uh, Mm -hmm. How do you make sure they go home with the best oil?
4: Well, first of all, even for the Italians, the best olive oil is never sold in a grocery store. It's sold in a wine shop. So you go for high quality wine, you get good quality olive oil as well with them. Really, but a wine shop, a wine in Italy shop sells will have the olive good, oil. good olive oil. So, you pay a little extra, you get better quality and, and balsamic, balsamic vinegar. vinegar and things like that. Hmm. So, oh, okay. but the, your best bet really, if you can, is to get out to an oil producing farm, and you know they'll do an explanation on how they make there and let you taste it so that you can see the quality, and then uh. buy directly from them. They're dotted around in different
1: places around Italy. That would be an unforgettable experience. So find out where you can buy it from the farm. Right. Right off the farm. There you go, Cheryl. Okay, thank you. That's very good information. I appreciate it. Thanks for your call. And Aaron's calling from Granville, Ohio. Hey, Aaron. Hello. Thanks for
2: taking my phone call.
1: Yeah. Do you have a question or a comment about olive oil?
2: I do, Yes, yeah, a question. If it's not on the table, if it's not provided, it's proper to ask for olive oil?
3: So, feel if you're sitting at a restaurant and uh, you don't see any olive oil, can you ask for it? In my opinion, if you just sit in there, mm-hmm. there's no reason to ask for olive oil, because there's kind of a, a stereotype, especially in Italian American restaurant. Mm-hmm. As soon as you sit it, you'll find olive oil, you find vinegar, mm-hmm. and you put things together, and then you dip your bread. Right. If you do that, you're going to ruin your appetite. Okay. okay? So there's a reason why you don't find on the table, uh, because you're going to start probably with a plate of antipasti, you're going to get your primo, which is your pasta, later your secondo or a salad. If you, at the time, you are by your main course, and then you want some olive oil or more olive oil in the salad, and that is the time to ask for olive oil on the table. Otherwise, there is no reason. So if there is, if it should have olive oil, it comes with olive oil on it? Already, it would be put by the chef. So if the restaurant's
1: any good, trust the chef, yeah. and it's unusual yeah. to need more olive oil.
3: And... The olive oil creates this kind of film in your palate that isolates all of your test mm. pads, and you don't understand if they're giving you fresh materials or not. <laughs> and so... Ah, so if you're a restaurant, and you're going to try to pawn off lousy food on people, film mm-hmm. some olive oil first. Yeah, because the <laughs>
1: test pads get a little damp. There you go, Aaron. Fascinating. Thank you. Thanks for your question. Happy travels and, and buon appetito. And I had never even thought about that because I grew up thinking olive oil should be there, and, you know, you right. dip your bread. What would you like our listeners to know to better appreciate the olive oil culture in Italy?
4: Well, olive oil, it's so good for you. And, and the Americans, they bring the way that they eat in America to Italy, which isn't right. They fill up with bread on the table, first off with a salad, and then they go to their main course. They don't realize that here, we've got a first course course, Sometimes it can be the antipasto, then the first course, then the second course. And to fill up on bread, then they always complain that they weren't able to order uh, yeah. any
1: more food because they were too full. So you have to follow the way the Italians eat. And bottom line, when you go to a great restaurant in Italy, you don't need to worry about pouring the olive oil. It will be where it's supposed to be. Absolutely. We're learning about the foundation of a Mediterranean-style diet right now on Travel with Rick Steves as Italy-based tour guides Anne Long and Alfio De Mauro sing the praises of olive oil. So, Anne, you've got how many olive trees in your... I
4: have about 100 olive trees on property that belongs to my husband's family. Oh, right. So what's it like? When's harvest time, and what's that like? Uh, down in the south of Italy where I live, we start harvesting usually in October, October-November time. Oh, okay. Uh, further north you go, it's more November-December time.
1: In the United States, I understand they actually grow olives in a way so they can be harvested with vibrating uh, big forks and sort of automated. Right. Do you grow your trees a certain way for they're easy to harvest, or do you do it by hand?
4: We prune the trees, of course, to try to keep them as low as we can, so that we don't have to climb up too high on them. Uh-huh. But you always have some man up in the tree with his comb, electric comb electric that combs comb. the branch. While the people are down below collecting the low lying, yeah, yeah.
1: I was in Palestine during harvest time, and they put a big uh, blanket below the tree. That's right. The kids are out of school for that week. I mean, when it's olive harvest, there's no school. You need help. It's all hands on deck. Yeah, Alfio,
3: let's wrap this up just with your last uh,
1: advice on uh, appreciating the olive oil when you're traveling in Italy.
3: If I can give a suggestion to Americans that want to get good olive oil. Mm Of course, when they are traveling in Italy, go to a daily shop more than a mass uh, grocery store mm-hmm. to find a good product. Uh, if you try to read in the label, try to find the acronym DOP. DOP, D-O-P in the label, which it means that is a product of quality that is coming from a specific territory. So, what does DOP mean? Denominazione di origine protetta. It's like the appellation of quality that you find for wine. Okay. You also find for any other food product. So that's the mark of quality, DOP he yeah, your- links Yeah, any links, that bottle of olive oil with a batch of olives that comes from an Italian little corner that has been recognized to make an excellent product. Because the problem is nowadays in this global world is that olives can travel all around the world and then if they end up in Italy and they are processed in Italy and put inside a bottle in Italy, they can be called product of Italy. Ah! But even if the olives were made in Morocco or in Tunisia or in Turkey, and that is what people don't understand, especially in the United States, because the United States have a big market. They don't produce olive oil, but you're a big consumer. Mm-hmm. And you find a bottle of olive oil that comes from Italy, but it's not really coming from Italy unless you'll find DOP with D-O-P. the name of the region in Italy. There's one problem nowadays with olive oil that ends up in the United States mm-hmm. because Spain, Greece, Italy, Morocco, Tunisia, and Turkey, all together make like 80% of the olive oil in the world. Mm. So if you are an American citizen... Chances are, if you're buying olive oil, you're buying from one of those countries. Even if it says Italian olive oil? Yeah, yeah. Without correct. The, what, is correct. The, what are the letters again? D- D-O-P. So D-O-P. D-O-P. But if you see D-O-P on the bottle, you know it's... You know it comes from Italy, and it has been produced with the best quality. And best quality e- means hand-picked or professionally picked, but processed as soon as possible. Otherwise, the acidity that Anne was talking about, yeah. it will go high. It will never be... Extra virgin olive oil. But what I wanted to say is that America is in danger when it comes to that because it's the first big consumer mm-hmm. that is not a big producer. Okay. So imports all of that. Oliver olive oil. And imported. unfortunately, America doesn't belong to the International Olive Council. Uh-huh. So extra virgin olive oil does not have a legal meaning in U.S. Okay, so we have to. If we're smart, so U.S. So has a different category. Yeah. That means a lot of bad quality olive oil ends up in U.S. market because U.S. market mm-hmm. is not protected legally. Labeling. So now
1: Labeling. You're, you're traveling around the United States now, and and you are also. When you go to a restaurant, do you notice if the olive oil is a different quality from what you're used to in Italy? Oh, see. Yes, I do. Right away.
4: Right away. From the color. You you have to taste Uh it with plain bread and things so you can get a bite. If you don't have a bite in the back of your throat, you know, it's not good oil. Oh, interesting. It's
3: plain industrial made. Yeah, industrial. Uh, And it's just mass produced in Tunisia
1: or something like that. And no offense to Tunisia, but uh, if you're buying olive oil in the United States, uh,
3: it's more likely grown in a place like Tunisia with an Italian label slapped onto it. Right. Yeah, well, the problem is that when it's made in Tunisia, it's good at the beginning, but then it gets concentrated and worked so much that it loses all of the good benefit because they shipped in yeah. Europe in a very concentrated form, ah, like a paste. Is that right? And then they dilute it back. Ah. So that's the, the passage that we should avoid.
1: Ship ah. yeah. it and concentrate it, yeah. add water and call it Italian olive oil.
4: They also ship the oil in containers, and oil like they ship petroleum for cars and they're making gasoline. They ship it in containers with just a membrane to uh, hold it. Uh-huh. But before they put the membrane in the tank, they spray the tank for rats and everything oh, like let's that. Let's stop this
1: conversation. <laughs> I want to go back to that bruschetta, <laughs> that heavenly no, bruschetta. W- something, with... <laughs> something we
3: should say for the American people is there are no cutting corners in olive oil. There's not a good deal olive oil is expensive if you want a good olive oil you should pay for it ah. a good half a liter mm-hmm. bottle of olive oil in America can easily cost $20 and it is worth it it's worth it yeah. don't cut corners there is no two buck check for olive oil it is expensive to make it <laughs> no, and you said no two buck check <laughs> yeah
1: not that. that's, that's pretty good yeah life is too short
3: to, yeah. to eat olive mediocre oil olive oil costs a lot of money and uh, people should pay for it
1: it's worth paying yeah Words to Live By, from my Italian tour guide friends. Alfio Di Maro, and Long. Buon appetito, and grazie. Grazie a te. Buon appetito. Ciao.
0: E per questo ti dico, amore, amore, Io
2: t'attenderò ogni sera, Ma tu vieni non aspettare ancora, Vieni adesso finché è primavera,
1: Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tappan and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks to Sarah McCormick for her help this week. Special thanks to WBEZ in Chicago for studio help this week. You'll find more at ricksteves.com slash radio. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves.
2: Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. Next year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.